Humidity, 71%. News and weather, RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Back Chat. I'm Danny Gittings. My co-presenter this morning is Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Danny. <laughs> On today's Back Chat, we're going to be looking at um, Hong Kong's expat livability rate rankings. In its annual ratings report released by HR consultancy ECA International, they observed a significant improvement in the city's attractiveness among expats since last year, citing the removal of COVID restrictions as the main reason. But while the city has several advantages, such as low crime rates and good infrastructure, its global position has still plunged in the rankings over the past decade and is far behind other cities such as Singapore and Tokyo. Meanwhile, South Korea's large, second largest city, Busan, has been labelled Asia's most improved city over the last 10 years in the survey. So how should we interpret these figures? What factors do expats to view as most decisive and what are Hong Kong's main strengths and weaknesses? Later on in the programme, we're going to be talking to a Macau journalist about how the former Portuguese enclave is going to bid farewell to its race course. Let us know what you think about both topics. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio Free. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call. The number there, 233-88266. Joining us for the main segment of our show this morning, we have on the line uh, Mark Harrison. Mark Harrison is Associate Director for, of, of Asia at ECA International. ECA International conducted the uh, expat livability survey that we're talking about. And we also have uh, uh, Roy Ying. Roy Ying is uh, co-chair of the Advocacy and Policy Research Committee at the Hong Kong Institute of Human Resources Management. Uh, good morning. Welcome to Back Chat. Mark Harrison, let's go to you first. Um, tell us about this survey. It, it's been going for a, a lot. I see ratings going back to at least 2013. How long has it been going for now? Yeah, good morning. Yeah, uh, we've been doing this survey for over 30 years. Um, so we yeah, covering about 500 locations globally, um, around about 100 here in Asia. Okay, and Hong Kong's uh, ranking is jumping about like a yo-yo, isn't it? I mean, uh, it's 77th this year, 92nd last year. If my if the figures I've seen are correct, it was 77 yep. again t- two years ago. It's, just, it's basically back to where it was two years ago. But if we go back to uh, uh, 2013 or so, it was 17th. That's 1-7 instead of 77, right? Correct, yeah. Yeah, so we've seen obviously quite a lot of changes, you know, over the years, uh, over the last 10 years here in Hong Kong. Um, you know, starting, if, if we look at that 10 year period, um, you know, we can start with the, some of the protests that we saw back in 2014, um, which did lead to uh, an increase in the score um, for, for one of our factors, which looks at things like um, socio political tensions, um, as well as disruption to, you know, being able to get around the city. Yeah. Um, so that did lead to a little bit of a fall into 2014, um, and, and then things were relatively stable and steady for the for the next few years. Um, and then obviously we had the you know the big pro democracy um, protests of, of 2018, 2019, which again led to you know significant disruption in terms of people being able to get around, um, as well as a big increase in terms of um, socio political tensions here in the city. Mark, um, so we mo- saw a big drop into 2019 there. Yeah. Good morning, Mark. Mark, can I? Can you tell listeners something about the nuts and bolts of this survey? Uh, how many people do you talk to? Where where do they live, and so on? Sure. So the majority of the research that we actually do for this is based on our in-house research team. So what we're trying to look at is not just 
people's opinions. Right. Um, so we're not, we're not, we do survey some expatriates and we do take their opinions a little bit into consideration, but the majority of what we're trying to look at um, is official sources of data. So um, for things like crime rates, you know, we'll look at the officially published crime rates for, for a location, um, you know, if that location publishes reliable uh, data. Um, and we'll also try and look at obviously multiple sources of data um, for, for each of the areas that we assess as well. So it's basically data collection by your, your own people? Correct, yeah. Based on either um, our own research or, you know, externally produced research. So for things like air pollution, obviously we can rely on, you know, externally produced um, professional resources that, that will publish data around air pollution levels in, in, around the world. But on some things, your team must be making a qualitative judgment, aren't they, right? When you talk about um, unrest and things like that, uh, there's no particular data you can use to decide the change in the score there. Someone's got to be making their own decision about how much they think it affects uh, the ranking. Correct, yeah. In terms of the weighting, um, so there's a weighting that we give to each of the factors that we look at. um, And that's obviously based on our, our, uh, you know, our opinion. but again, you know, that's been collected um, based on, you know, surveys that we have taken in the past based on expatriates' opinions about, OK, what is it that really impacts your day-to-day life when you're, you know, located in a, in a different location? You I, know, what are the factors that have the most significant impact to you? Yes. Uh, this kind of survey, I used to get these kind of surveys landing on my desk a lot uh, when I was Director General of Investment Promotion back in the day. Um, and it's not just a livability. I mean, you do that one. Other people talk about attractiveness for investment uh, and things like that. Um, yeah. There's a lot of subjectivity as well, isn't there? We try to remove the subjectivity as much as possible. So, you know, what we're trying to do, because this data that we, we use is used by companies to decide, okay, what level of allowance do we need to provide to our expatriates when we're sending them to different locations right. around the world? That, that, so we tried to move yeah. that as much as possible, yeah. And, and governments, the action of governments, I remember my own, is if we're looking good in this survey, it's accurate, and if we're looking bad, it's obviously <laughs> deeply flawed. <laughs> yeah. You get that kind of response as well? Uh, not so much, no. I mean, uh, a lot of the data that we do use in this survey will be, you know, government-published statistics, so things like crime rates. Um, will obviously come from uh, government published data, even things like, um, you know, healthcare facilities, all of that kind of thing. So we look at um, things like the risk of catching infectious diseases in certain locations. So again, that's all, you know, government published data in, in most locations. The, the political element to this, and you talk about the geopolitical uh, influence, I think is absolutely right. And, but there have been some extraordinary comments from overseas individuals in overseas countries about Hong Kong. Um, friends just back, I'm a member of a lunch club that meets at Hong Kong Club every month. Um, members coming back from the UK, they've been asked, literally, is Hong Kong still safe for white people? I mean, is our, is our reputation so bad? <laughs> I mean, not according to our rankings. And, and I, yeah, I think, you know, what we're trying to do with this is, is remove a lot of that noise that you hear. Right. Um, you know, we're aware, obviously, that 
people in China hear terrible things about the USA, people in the USA hear terrible things about China or whatever, right? We're trying to remove that as much as possible and look at, okay, what's the actual crime rate? Is there, and in some locations there is, there is targeting of foreign individuals when it comes to crime. Is that, you know, is that realistic? Is that really happening in that location? And obviously in Hong Kong, you know, the crime rate is, is very, very low. Um, and there's no real targeting of, of expatriates here, as far as we know. Okay, we're discussing uh, the latest expat uh, livability rankings uh, from HR, HR Consultancy ECA International, and you just heard Mark Harrison from HR Consultancy ECA International. Uh, Hong Kong um, back up again this year. Well, relatively up. It's back to 77, 77th, which is where it was two years ago. Uh, let, let's now bring in the uh, second of our guests, who, who's with us at the moment, uh, Roy Ying uh, from Hong Kong Institute Hi. of Human Resource Management. Good morning. Um, um, what do you make of this... Um, sort of mild rebound but um still hong kong at sort of historically low levels i mean does that time with your own impression uh, it really doesn't affect the um the impact of uh from the employer's point of view because we obviously want uh, expats to come the right talent and uh from our own uh, in-house data the number one reason for expats to want to come to Hong Kong is a career prospect. Uh, and obviously the second would be um, they want to make a home in Hong Kong. So, so, the, um, so the, uh, the rankings that, uh, that ECA has produced is of reference value. Um, whether it is ranked number 77, number 60, number 55, it really doesn't make a whole lot of difference. It's really boils down to, okay, if I want to make a home here, how easy it is for me to get around. Uh, if my family were to come here, can my wife get a job? Are there uh, international schools for my kids? And these are the, the sort of things that expats look at. Um, now, I, I do have to uh, uh, qualify what I say by uh, differentiating uh, two groups of uh, expats. One is the ones whose uh, packages and uh, remunerations and the local subsidies are paid for by the employers and the others are just foreigners working in Hong Kong under local terms. Um, I'm talking about the ones that, that the company is paying for. Okay, um, but it's surely um, what um, Mark Harrison was saying just now is that, I mean, if you're an employer, you number one, you want to get the right candidate, but number two, um, you want to pay them as little as possible, consistent with having the right candidate. <laughs> and um, if uh, does, does Hong Kong's ranking affect how much you have to pay foreign talent to come to Hong Kong? Uh, from my conversation with the employers, um, expats they look for three things number one obviously a job um number two housing number three uh education so these these are the top three areas where um where expats look for uh, i'm sure mark uh in, in their in their consultants work they, they would agree to to all these basic requirements um but but again whether a company a, a, a city is attractive has uh, a lot more to do than the quantitative, uh, qualitative data that we can collect. Uh, my, my uh, we have a quite a lot of uh, foreigners as um, as professors and lecturers in the university I work for. They, what they look for is the vibrancy in the in the city, whether they can have fun. Uh, some of the younger ones they want to have 
uh, good network, parties. So these are the attractiveness of Hong Kong. Yes, uh, there are. I do agree with uh, ECA surveys. There are certain uh, shortcomings, or so for example, availability of health services. The uh, the air quality is not as good as Singapore. The, these are areas that we can we can uh, certainly improve. Um, but I do also want to echo what um, Mike was saying uh, just a moment ago. I was in Bangkok playing golf over the weekend and. Uh, and one of the guys who was playing with me and asked me, hey, do you still have uh, Google? Uh, can you have CNN? Is presidency telling you everything what you want? I said, well, I'm sorry. Well, I'm not sure what kind of media you've been watching, <laughs> but uh, things are pretty normal. So according to me, I don't ever see presidency at all. <laughs> so, um, And you don't yeah, get a I, daily I sheet a- from – you don't get a daily uh, instruction sheet from him about how to do your no, job. No. no. <laughs> Yeah, no, that is a common not, perception. Not that I know of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your copy's not getting through either. Um, Roy, yeah, the, the point uh, in the Mark, yeah. in Mark's survey, which I found interesting, was this bit about the benefits as well. Uh, the, that is, the, yeah. the grading can affect what employers have to pay. I remember a few years ago when Hong Kong was graded a hardship posting by the Canadian government. <laughs> And they, they, yeah, therefore yeah, yeah. they bought a whole bunch of memberships. So I think it was the Aberdeen Boat Club or uh, somewhere down there. AMC, That's the way yeah, to yeah, compensate yeah. for a hardship posting is you get a club membership. That's right. I, I, this sort of, and this was a huge scandal in Ottawa um, when it was, uh, came out in the budget. Uh, so that is an element, isn't it? That's a, that's a practical thing. Roy, Roy Ying? Um, yeah, I'm just thinking um, what... Mike is saying, yes, uh, employers are really looking ways to um, lower their operating costs because that's how uh, companies stay competitive and uh, also Hong Kong's competitiveness. Um, I think it's, it's, it boils down to uh, the market supply and demand. If you are unable to get talent from Hong Kong, you have to bring in expatriates. And you, you have, if you're not offering attractive enough uh, packages, you pay the price. I hate to use this example, but Cathay Pacific is the prime example. Um, they've gotten rid of all the expatriate terms of the pilots. Every pilot now, I don't care who you are, where you're from, where you're born, you are employed by Cathay Pacific under local terms. And therefore, it's not attractive to work for Cathay anymore. And uh, and therefore, what is Cathay's you know, doing now. They're starting to cancel flights and they're trying to train um, pilots um, in ridiculous numbers and they're trying to cut the number of hours they, they need to train, et cetera, et cetera. It is something that is backfiring. Okay. So uh, organizations, they, they do need to realize that. Okay. Uh, uh, sorry. It, fair price to pay. Yeah. Uh, let's bring in the third of our guests who's now joined us. Uh, Leslie Tang. Leslie Tang is head of uh, client solutions at Greater China Randstad. Uh, good morning, Mr. Tang. Welcome to Back Chat. Hey, good morning. What do you make of the, I mean, this, the, to sum up this uh, latest livability survey says that um, Hong Kong is more livable for expats than it was uh, a year or two ago, but is much, much less livable than it was 10 years ago. I mean, right. how does that tie in with your own experience? Yeah, well, you know, when I look at the, the the survey, obviously a sharp drop of in the last ten years. I think it's it's really, and I and I and I kind of listened in a little bit. It's really due to 
uh, a lot of the things that have happened in these last 10 years, the political demonstrations in 2017, the protests in 2019, as well as, you know, the extensive border control measures we that have made Hong Kong probably one of the last places to open up after COVID. So it's not surprising in that sense. But I think when you look at, you know, the reasons why also on the flip side, why people want to work and live in Hong Kong, it's quite different in 2013 compared to now. 2013, at that time, Hong Kong was still positioned as a good entry market for people looking to expand their Asian portfolio. Uh, there were definitely many job opportunities presented to companies that were embarking on digital transformation. But you look at 2013, uh, 2023 now, post-COVID, uh, changes in the political environment, um, you know, that, that sort of thing will definitely uh, either attract expats who are looking to return to Hong Kong, but really those who are looking to expand their Greater Bay portfolio uh, as a great way to get into mainland China. Well, one thing we also see in these survey results is that um, Macau is not so far off um, Hong Kong these days. I mean, Macau's mm. ranking is the, this year is, is uh, actually basically the same as Hong Kong's ranking was last year. I mean, it's true Hong Kong's ranking has improved since last year, but um, mm. uh, the difference has clearly narrowed, hasn't it? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's, it, it, most people will sort of associate Hong Kong and Macau. They're quite close in terms of, you know, geographies. But I think, uh, you know, in terms of the distance, as in, you know, quite close. But in terms of just the, 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 the portfolio, the type of clientele, they're different. The job opportunities, they're quite vastly different. But I think the other thing that really plagues Hong Kong is that it is quite, and I think this was mentioned by Roy, it's quite an you know, expensive city to live. So, you know, things like um, in terms of the significance of when people are looking for relocation, it's definitely, uh, as he said, education comes up as one. Um, you know, in terms of securing a very stable opportunity, a stable job would definitely be another. Uh, I think these things play a lot into the factor of when they're looking to relocate. And how about the fact that we're so far behind Singapore and Tokyo? Well, if you compare those specific areas, I mean, looking at the ECA data, uh, it does show that obviously Hong Kong is not where it wants to be. Uh, but when you look at Singapore, Singapore has always been a strong business and talent competitor to Hong Kong. Quite similar in terms of the business environment, I would say. Uh, while there is a preference for uh, those that want to go to Singapore, it's probably one of the, I think, first Asian countries to open up during the pandemic. But certainly the reputation uh, to be one of the world's most expensive cities could really deter talent, especially those we find amongst junior to middle level professionals. So I still think that, you know, Hong Kong can be quite competitive in that sense. Uh, there are many shared opportunities, I would say, between, uh, say, China and Hong Kong uh, that can really de- benefit those that are looking to deepen their uh, networks in greater China. OK, I, I, this is I'm back, it's back to Mike. Um, Mark and Roy, uh, the relative things between uh, in the old days we used to say that hong kong was more expensive than singapore and we used to have to concede that uh has the pendulum swung the other way no so i mean well, I, um... yeah we we publish you know <laughs> no, mark, say mark, mark first and then we'll go to right sure sorry yeah so so we publish you know cost of living data as well that we we that our clients reference when they they're trying to calculate cost of living adjustments that they might need to provide to their expatriates Hong Kong is still more expensive than Singapore. Um, the gap has narrowed over the last couple of years. You know, we've seen inflation in Singapore, um, you know, running at 7 8% or whatever. Um, and here in Hong Kong, it's been much lower. Um, but there's still, you know, I think about a 15% difference in terms of, of, of prices. Um, housing costs in Hong Kong are still, you know, much higher than Singapore, despite very, very high increases again in Singapore over the last couple of years. So the gap's narrowing, but Hong Kong is still uh, right. uh, uh, overall more expensive than Singapore. Roy, what's your impression? 
Well, Hong Kong is expensive. As um, Mike, you've um, pointed out, uh, people expect Hong Kong to be expensive. Uh, but I'll, I also agree with what Mark says. Uh, Singapore is cost of living is rising very, very, very quickly. Uh, I was just looking at some um, some news. Uh, the uh, for a, for a foreigner to be buying a housing in Singapore, the uh, the taxes in doubled, and it's and therefore driving up the uh, the rental costs very, very rapidly. So. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, a few years down the road, Singapore is as expensive, if not more expensive than Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, but sorry, you, you because yeah, these these figures are presumably done a year in, a year in arrears, basically. I mean, you're looking at trends um, from a previous year. So the point you're making is that um, with the subsequent increase in um, prices in Singapore, is likely to affect its rankings, right? Yes, it is, and. Uh, and also, Hong Kong is actually making some um, some improvements in some of the areas that uh, that uh, ECA is looking at. For example, uh, housing and utilities, access to social network. These are and recreational facilities. These are things that, uh, what, since the opening up of the borders and the easing of the co- uh, COVID anti uh, social distancing measures, um, people's you know access to fun to networking it's it's improved and uh, I'm, i would be surprised if the same survey uh, next year uh, we can see uh, a good 10 15 places improvement i i, I hope mark will uh, will agree with that <laughs> yeah i think yeah i think we, we can certainly hope for that um you know there there's like you said, some of the factors that the expatriates are looking at, things like access to education, those scores are excellent for Hong Kong. Things like recreational facilities, again, you know, those, the facilities we have here in Hong Kong are, are excellent. Um, the challenge that Hong Kong has is, is, uh, is still related to kind of three main factors, really, that, that, uh, that lead to this kind of lower ranking, which is, you know, those, those ongoing socio-political tensions and, and, and culture changes, um, the, the relatively high levels of pollution that we suffer from here um, compared to, to other locations in the region, potentially, um, and also the impact of, of um, kind of natural disasters. So things like typhoons that, you know, just in the last few months, right, we've had a couple of very, very big typhoons. We've had black rain, and that's caused, a, you know, a pretty significant disruption to people's uh, day-to-day lives. So those are the kind of factors that are kind of holding Hong, Hong Kong back versus, you know, the excellent recreation, the excellent infrastructure, the ability to get around, etc. Yeah. Uh, Tokyo can have earthquakes. Right. Uh, Tokyo can yeah. have earthquakes, yeah. and it's that far ahead be... of Hong Kong. I'm I, just a bit puzzled by that aspect of the rankings. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, that that's certainly a factor for Tokyo as well. Um, you know, which is why Tokyo again is is unlikely to be able to catch up with somewhere like Singapore, which you know, although the climate, you know, as a as a Brit, the climate doesn't suit me because it's hot all year round. But at least it's consistent. There's no level. There's very little in terms of uh, disruption due to those kind of climate yeah. concerns or, or natural disasters. Uh, we're coming up to the news, but Leslie Tang, just quickly, do, do, do you think that um, Hong Kong is also going to rebound in the next couple of years? Yeah, I believe so. I mean, um, two gentlemen there made some very valid points. I think, uh, you know, there's definitely things that plague the city, but at the same time, we do have world-class facilities. Uh, I think, you know, our proximity to Greater China definitely um, will uh, attract certain talent pool that want to expand their portfolio, as I mentioned. So I do believe that, you know, the landscape will change and hopefully in a year's time, the ECA will publish data that uh, will be, you know, definitely putting the rankings back up for Hong Kong. 
Okay, we're talking about the uh, ECA rankings. The ECA rankings, as we said, already actually improved for Hong Kong over the uh, over the past year. Let me just try and bring in a comment from a uh, listener uh, just before we break for the news. Uh, Mike says, I returned to Hong Kong nearly a year ago after a year in the US due to not taking the jab. I've listened to um, back chat and my um, my biggest notice is that there's, there's, there's less listener participation before. Why advertise your phone number when you're not in this interviews? Well, Mike, let me assure you that we are very much interested in uh, hearing views uh, from uh, listeners. Um, and indeed, you or anyone else is most welcome to uh, call us. The number is uh, 233-88-266. Uh, equally, uh, you can email us, backchat at rthklhk, or go to our Facebook page, as you have and a couple of other listeners have, uh, backchat on RTHK Radio Free, and uh, leave a comment there. As I mentioned, uh, we're going to break for the news, but do stay with us because we're going to continue the discussion about the uh, ECA rankings after the news and later on we're also going to be talking to um, uh, Macau based uh, journalist uh, Jose Carlos Matias about um, the end of horse racing in Macau. Uh, the uh, weather forecast, it's going to be one or two light pa- rain patches at first but sunny periods during the day. Uh, the maximum temperature is going to be about 23 degrees. Currently however it's 21 degrees, relative humidity is 72%. percent <laughs> It's 9.30. Here's Todd Harting with the news. The Centre for Food Safety says three types of imported cereal products may have been contaminated by salmonella. The pathogen causes food poisoning, which can sometimes be fatal. Houthi rebels in Yemen have carried out a new attack on a cargo ship close to the Red Sea off Aden. They said a drone was used to hit what they said was a U.S. vessel. The latest attack took place as the Biden administration announced that it was returning the Houthis to a list of global terrorist organizations. And police in Ecuador say a prosecutor who was investigating an attack by gunmen on a television studio during a live broadcast has been murdered. Cesar Suarez was shot several times as he drove his car on a motorway in the city of Guayaquil. The the attack last week on the studio was one of many carried out by criminal gangs across Ecuador in response to the declaration of a state of emergency. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Hey, you can ask if you don't understand, but if you lose your hearing, there's no cure. Working near loud noises without hearing protection can easily cause occupational deafness. Employers and employees must work together on prevention. Employees engaged in specified noisy occupations suffering from occupational deafness can apply for compensation. For details, visit the Occupational Deafness Compensation Board website or call 2723-1288 for inquiries. If you submitted a 2024 Primary 1 application form but have not secured a discretionary place, you will receive the letter of choice of schools for central allocation from the Education Bureau. Please follow the instructions and go to the designated central allocation centre or through the e-platform to make your choice of schools. If you have not received the letter by January 22nd, please contact the School Places Allocation section of the Education Bureau at 2832-7700. Welcome back to Backchat. I'm Danny Gittings. My co-presenter today is Mike Rouse. In the second half of the uh, show, we're going to be initially to continue our discussion about uh, Hong Kong's attractiveness to expats on the back of um, HCR consultancy ECA International's latest annual ratings report, which showed a significant improvement in Hong Kong's rankings um, uh, from last year. Hong Kong now up to 77 compared with 92 uh, last year. But of course, by historical standards, that is still very low indeed. Uh, back in 2000, Hong Kong, 2000 
2013, Hong Kong was uh, 17th place. Um, uh, later on in the program, we're going to be talking to uh, Macau journalist uh, Jose Carlos Matias, who's joined us here in the studio about the end of horse racing in Macau, coming on the back of a similar end in Singapore recently. Bad time for horse racing. Uh, if you've got any thoughts on either topic, uh, do email us at backchat at rthk.hk, or you can, as uh, listener Mike was reminding us, you can certainly call us on the 233-88266, or you can go to our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio Free, and leave a comment there. Uh, before we go back to uh, Mark Harrison, uh, let's bring in uh, some comments uh, from our Facebook page. Uh, Ilno says, uh, it's interesting to see the recent expat livability rankings for Hong Kong. It's worth noting various surveys have been conducted, each considering different factors. It's important to remember that what makes a city livable can vary greatly from person to person. Do these rankings truly capture the full story about Hong Kong? This answers a question. When it comes to climate risks, such as typhoons, I personally don't believe it makes Hong Kong any less livable for expats. In fact, it can present an opportunity to take a break and appreciate the city's resilience. However, addressing um, uh, air pollution should be a, definitely be a priority. Hong Kong has returned to a calm environment with no more protests, which contributes to its reputation as a safe place to live. Its business-friendly environment is also a significant advantage. Perhaps conducting a survey among expats to understand their priorities and perspectives on livability factors will be beneficial. By identifying Hong Kong's strengths and weaknesses in terms of expat livability, Hong Kong can focus on areas that require improvement. Having spent a considerable amount of time in this wonderful city, I can confidently reassure expats considering a move to Hong Kong that it is indeed a highly livable city that welcomes everyone. And one more one more message from Mike. Uh, this one uh, directly on today's topic says, I live in the new territories where burglary rate is seldom discussed compared to prevalence of which it happens. Vicious dogs as household deterrents are the, uh, uh, household pets are the best deterrents. I have six. So <laughs> be careful you're around there, right? Right? Non-violent opportunist thieves walk among us. Not a reason to leave, but that in combination with what Hong Kong uh, used to be is contributing to the expat exit. Thank you right. very much indeed. So burglars everywhere, note, <laughs> don't go to Mike's house. He's got six dogs to eat you. Uh, Mark, um, I want to come back to you and this survey. Uh, as I understand it, you're working as far as possible from objective criteria. Correct crime rate, pollution rate, and so on. And, and you're essentially neutral, right? You don't care yeah, yeah. who's up and who's down. Nope. These, these are just messages for the host governments to sort of get a grip of. OK, we're, we're not doing well in pollution. Let's, let's do a bit more there. Um, well, the, the message is the message really for organisations who are sending people to say, look, if, you want, if you've got people that you want to send to Hong Kong and you've got people you want to send to Singapore and you've got people you want to send to more difficult locations like, you know, uh, Nigeria, India, um, Brazil, whatever it might be, we're trying to say, look, to, in order to, to be able to do that uh, fairly, you need to have a system that recognizes some locations have a, need a greater level of adaptation than others, and you need to compensate people right. for that adaptation. Yeah. Have you... Have have you thought of expanding the scope and doing more on opinions of expats? We we do ask opinions. Yeah, the problem with this is you know some of the some of the expats that we're asking 
are the direct beneficiaries of these allowances, right? So right. we have to take that very, very, so, uh, very, very carefully. So it's terrible um, here. It's terrible. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Gin and, and, and tonics they... are up to $10 a time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So we, we do take into consideration, um, but we'll obviously give that a much lesser weight compared to... Um, you know the factors that we can we can look at much more objectively, right? And measure. Um, yeah. Are, are there other surveys done by other organisations in your field? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. It's more, um, more opinion based because you you want to ask. It's not just the people who are already an expat somewhere. It's I guess someone should be asking people who are not yet an expat. Yeah. So there are certainly you know surveys that organisations do that look at you know perceptions. Of, of countries before people have even visited them, um, you know, that, that, that can help um, organizations with that. What we try to do again is, is just remove that as much as possible and say, look, this is based on, you know, factors that will impact your day-to-day -day life. Um, we've weighted those based on how much of an impact that will have. Um, and we've tried to make it as objective as possible. So, you know, if you apply this data, you know, you're not just basing it on, you know, an individual who says, oh, yeah, I went to Hong Kong once on holiday and I loved it, or, <laughs> you know, I went to Australia and I hated it, or, or whatever it might be. Right, both of those things I uh, would endorse emphatically. <laughs> Tell us just more about the rise in uh, mainland cities in this index. I mean, they're, they're still behind Hong Kong, but the, the difference has certainly um, narrowed. I'm looking at Shenzhen especially has now risen up to uh, number 137. And I think your survey finding that in terms of things like um, uh, education and so on now, that, that that's one of the reasons for significant improvements there. Yeah, so we've seen this pattern, you know, uh, across uh, cities in mainland China that have have had this sort of gradual, continual improvement over the last 10 years of, you know, things that you might consider relatively minor, but actually have, a, have an impact. So things like, you said, access to international schools, um, access to, uh, you know, improvements to the transport system, um, so you can get around uh, the city much more easily, um, and other sort of general improvements in access to recreational facilities um, and healthcare as well. Are the, are the main ones that we've seen in, in mainland China. How, how much did the mainland Chinese cities take a hit during COVID? I mean, we, we took a hit during COVID on our rankings, didn't we? And uh, China was yeah. more closed than Hong Kong, although than the, the mainland China was more closed than Hong Kong. So presumably it would have affected them as well. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, again, and they've all risen up very, very rapidly over the last 12 months. Once Now those restrictions have been removed. What, what, um, what about things like visas? We don't, we don't consider that um, as, as part of our, uh, of these rankings. Um, because this data is, is, you know, used by companies, most of them, uh, would treat that separately and, and they'll cover the cost and they'll, you know, they'll do go through the whole application process think, on behalf of the right. employee. I, no, I was thinking we, of two areas. One is the uh, ease of the main employee getting a work visa, but also this automatic right that spouses have, I think, in Hong Kong. To yeah. work, yes. To work. But I think that's yeah. rare, isn't it, uh, globally, right? I mean, Mike, as a former investment lawyer, is going to say that Hong Kong's yes. competitive advantage, but there are not that many jurisdictions which allow spouses automatically to work, right, Mark Harrison? Correct, yeah. And, and I think that is, that is an important, um, very positive thing about Hong Kong. You know, Singapore used to have it, I believe, maybe 20 years ago, and they removed it uh, at some point. 
Um, uh, Hong Kong is very rare in offering that, and it is, you know, my spouse is here, my wife's here, uh, and it's, it's made a huge difference to the ease with which we can live in the city because of it. Yeah, yeah we used to make a big point of this because we're, some of the people we're attracting are, are two-income households. Two yeah, the immigration department did withdraw it briefly, didn't they? They did, against our advice. This was where you were talking with your, in your days when you were in government, I, right? Absolutely, I you remember that. Did you fight to get it reinstated then at the time? We both. First of all, we, we fought against its withdrawal. It was uh, to do with uh, mainland spouses. That was the rationale. We must treat everyone the same. So they said, well, withdraw it from everyone then. <laughs> um, and uh, we said, no, no, give it to everyone. You're saying all in or all out, fine. All in, please, because that's a big selling point for us in Europe and uh, North America. I think the withdrawal only lasted a year or two, didn't it? It wasn't very long, so we fought against its withdrawal and we fought for its reinstatement and eventually we prevailed. Common sense prevailed. Okay, thank you for that historical footnote, Mike. Um, Now, although we're mostly concerned, uh, we've been looking at um, uh, Hong Kong and now we're talking about also uh, the mainland, just in the the closing minutes of this discussion, uh, let's branch out a a bit more because we we did mention at the start that if you look a bit further afield, uh, Busan in um, the southern southern tip of uh, South Korea is the... um, is the big star which has shot up? Uh, I mean, it's rank, it was used to be eighty first, and it's now in the top fifty. Um, uh, so, uh, what is that about, Mark Harrison? And are there any more sort of more general points we can draw from uh, Busan's rise about how a city can rise up the rankings? Yeah, so it, it's um, again, it's actually not been any you know one big dramatic change that that's been made in Busan. It's those incremental and gradual changes that they've made over the years. Um, so one of the things that we've we've seen Busan focus on, um, you know, alongside you know its, its expanding and growing economy, um, is a focus on recreational facilities, um, not just for, for for people who who live there, um, but they focused on the sort of um, mice factor. So trying to attract organisations to come in and do their conferences. Um, and the associated kind of recreational and cultural facilities that they've added um, around that. The other things that we've seen improve, again, healthcare, um, similar to what we've seen in, in mainland China, um, and transport infrastructure as well has all improved, you know, gradually, but significantly over the last kind of 10 years. So what lessons can we draw here? And uh, do we draw that it's, um, it's not about one factor, it's about uh, it's sort of a, a combination of factors? Is that, is Correct, that yeah. yeah. I think that's, that's really, um, you know, as, as people have said, you know, some of the people on your comments have said, you know, every individual has different things that will impact them, you know, more than others um, to make a city more attractive or less attractive, right? You know, one of the reasons... A lots of people I know love Hong Kong is hiking and beaches, but we can't put that as a as a factor in in location ratings, right? Um, but what you can do is improve everything a, a little bit. So things like pollution that we've talked about, you know, there is definitely things that can be done to improve that locally um, that will just make Hong Kong that little bit more uh, attractive as a location. Right, Mark. One final point from me: um, I've lived here half a century without learning to read or write Chinese or speak uh, very much Cantonese. Uh, is that a, a livability thing for expats? Uh, it is, yes. Yeah. So we do look at, we do look at uh, language and culture um, and the ability, uh, whether, whether a local language ability is required. Um, and we look at differences between the home and the host location. So if you're sending someone from 
you know, somewhere like Hong Kong into China. Obviously, there's, there's language similarities that makes it easier. Um, the good thing about Hong Kong, obviously, you can, as you've proved, um, <laughs> get by, by by just speaking English. OK, thank you very much. Uh, we'll draw the, this uh, discussion to a close. Uh, that was uh, Mark Harrison. Uh, Mark Harrison is Associate Director of, for, of Asia for ECA International, who conducted this, or conduct every year, this expat livability survey. Earlier on, we were also talking to uh, Roy Ying. Roy Ying is co-chair of Advocacy and Policy Research Committee at the Hong Kong Institute of Human Resources and Management. And we're also talking to Leslie Tang. Leslie Tang is uh, the Head of Client or Client Services at, for Greater China at Stay with us. There's never been an easier way to listen back to our programs on your device. Whichever platform you use, the RTHK Radio app is the perfect place to discover all our shows. It's so easy to use, it looks great, and in an instant, you'll be listening back to your favorite RTHK program. You can even tune in live using the app. Go check it out, the RTHK Radio app at your preferred app store. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. Moving on, horse racing is finally coming to an end in Macau. Uh, the uh, Macau Jockey Club has, or the, um, has been in trouble for a long time, and uh, now it's been announced that uh, the uh, concession contract with the Macau Horse Racing Company will end on April the 1st. Uh, joining us to uh, explain just what's going on and discuss this development is uh, Jose Carlos Matias, who is uh, Director at Macau Business and uh, Macau News Agency, and he's also the CEO of publisher Project Asia Corp. Uh, good morning. Welcome to Back Chat. Thank you very much. It was great. We have guests who actually join us in the studio. Yes. So, um, I mean, Macau, for those of us, I mean, we visit Macau frequently, right? But horse racing just fell off the radar as far as we're concerned in Macau a long time. Remind ago. us, say, when, when actually did the horse racing start? And did anyone ever go? I mean, yes. yes, they did at one time. Yes, yes, yes. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, uh, Danny, Mike, uh, all the listeners. Uh, let me start by telling you that it is really feels good and it, it is really special for me being here at RTHK. Uh, I myself, I worked in radio for uh, about 15 years. <laughs> so Welcome that's back. where it all started. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it, it is something truly meaningful being here. Well, horse racing, <clears throat> it's a long story and a long history, but um, under the current format, I mean, we had uh, in the early 1980s, we had the Macau Trotting Club. Uh, then um, that's right. That, that, that was yeah. That, that was the yeah. carts behind the horses. <laughs> yes, God, it's all coming back. <laughs> that was still 1988, and then of course there was uh, there were some financial uh, troubles, and uh, and then the the whole operation was transferred to uh, Stanley Hall's group, right? The, the late Stanley Hall, and then since 1991 we have the Macau Jockey Club operating um, as as we know it but uh, frankly speaking it has never was there ever a, a heyday well you may say that yes in a way in the 1990s and um, even more so by 2003 2004 uh, when 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 there, you, you did have uh, uh, really a very uh, sizable population of horses and also races and the uh, attendance it was going quite well but then things started to change by the end of the first decade of this century. 
And to give you a, an idea of uh, how we are, uh, the uh, in terms of the, let's say, the first three quarters of last year's uh, gross gaming revenue accounted for only 11.7% of uh, 2013. So, so that's, what, that's, what that's to... So yeah. there's a massive decline, but what happened? Why did people just... Just is it the expansion of the casinos and not just the casinos, but the whole sort of entertainment complex with it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, 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 that explains, that helps explain. Um, yeah, if, if you look at, well, in a way, horse uh, racing betting joins, uh, you know, a long list of, uh, of other uh, games uh-huh. that vanished uh, over the Greyhounds the decades. Vanished. Yes, exactly. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the, the Canidrome, the Greyhound racing uh, vanished. There was in there was uh, about uh, six years ago, and before you had a number of lotteries that could not survive. I can understand if horse racing had never been successful mm. in Macau, then. But um, you're saying it was successful at first, and then it just fe- it fell off yeah. the, off off the radar. So, so what happened? I mean, was mm. it just that people were trying out for a while and decided they weren't interested in it, or did something go? Was the Macau Jockey Club mismanaged? Or well, there's a yeah, well. Yeah, some people do uh, point it out, especially, um, I would say, over the past decade or even a bit earlier. Uh, but it's a mix of different uh, factors, I would say. I mean, probably management does play a role. Of course, we have here the Hong Kong Jockey Club. But Well, that's yeah, a good point, because yeah. I, mean, I know um, Singapore is also shutting down uh, yeah. horse racing. Maybe we'll get to that. But, I mean, horse racing is still going strong here in Hong Kong. And presumably, there are plenty of people in uh, Macau who follow the Hong Kong races as well. I I don't know if that's part of the problem. And, is well, that, and there used to be interchange. Mm-hmm. A trainer who well, maybe wanted to something slightly less intense go from Hong Kong to Macau and jockeys, uh, there was an interchangeability. But as Danny says, it, Hong Kong, we're still thriving. Um, so why can Hong why? Kong make a huge success of this? And uh, I mean, most of the time, actually, these days, Macau's doing so well. We tend to look at Macau and think, why aren't we doing as well, Hong Kong doing as well as Macau in several areas? But in here in horse racing, it's the reverse. Yeah, I mean, in a way, the, the writing was, was on the wall. You can say that. I mean, over the last few months, there's been a lot of speculation that, uh, you know, uh, it, 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 it had no future. Um, but... It still feels a bit. I mean, we our our publication we we held a roundtable uh, on the uh, first year of the new gaming concessions, uh, and what a coincidence that was held on Monday, the very same day when the government made this announcement that they would be terminating the concession of the Macau Jockey Club. And those uh, experts uh, on gaming uh, issues, uh, well, what they said is that, well, uh, it's a kind of, uh, one of them said is a kind of uh, chronicle of a death foretold in a way. But it's still uh, remarkable, uh, noteworthy, that the government made this announcement. And let me tell you this, um, this is important. Uh, The current concession was a 24-year Concession, which is really not usual. Uh, the first, yeah, let's casinos say, casinos only ten years. The yeah, casinos only ten years. The previous uh, concessions uh, of, uh, for casino licenses were twenty years, like t- the the, uh, the one after the liberalization. But in uh, in twenty eighteen, when the Macau government uh, announced the extension of the monopoly of the Macau Jockey Club for twenty four years, that would came as a surprise. That was supposed to be to have a number of 
strings attached, namely regarding developments, uh, uh, diversification, because it's a huge property. Let me tell you, this is a huge piece of land that now will revert to the government, uh, and this is, of course, another part of but the... It, but equation. it was done by agreement, wasn't it? It wasn't the government saying, right, no more horse racing. It was the jockey club was also in trouble, financially stretched. Yeah, but it was the government yeah. that took the initiative here. Well, did, did the government sort of push the jockey club? <laughs> What's your reading of it? Well, they announced it as, as, as of course, as an agreement, but, yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> I'd say... Uh, uh, they said they, they had been in talks for a number of months, uh, and the operator said that while they uh, were facing, a, you know, uh, accumulated like losses of uh, some 2.5 billion patakas, um, and, and they see no, they saw no future. But it's still, uh, I mean, if you look at the what the secretary for administration and justice said, uh, Andrew Chung. Um, he said, horse racing is a waning industry in Macau as well as in some uh, neighboring regions. In 2021, there was an average daily visitor count of 701, but that number uh, decreased to only 490 uh, to, uh, per day last year. So he went on uh, to uh, basically say that the like this activity no longer yielded the socioeconomic benefits that was supposed to yield. And also, uh, there's another point which uh, has got to do with the obligations of the operator. Uh, obligations regarding non-gaming, non-horse banning activities in the whole property. It was supposed to be a 1.5 billion pataka uh, commitment for uh, development, but uh, it seems that they could not uh, raise that uh, amount of money. And again, uh, that is a very, very, uh, uh, for Macau, if you know Macau is a small place, right? Uh, that piece of land, you know, there's a lot of discussion about what comes next. Yeah, I was about to ask about that. Yes, because yeah. Macau's expanding so fast and that um, uh, land, where, where is the site? Is it on Taipa? Taipa, yeah, it's on Taipa. Actually, uh, Mike was talking about the Canidrome, the Greyhound racing uh, track, and uh, what happened back then, uh, it was also in decay, yes, but there was another issue regarding animal welfare, a pretty I big remember. one. Big fuss, yes. big mistreatment yeah. of the dogs, and exactly. Hong Kong people adopt dogs from Macau yeah. to save them. Wow. <laughs> so is it possible that uh, part of this is yeah. that they want uh, the government wants to use the site for something? I mean, it's presumably uh, for any racetrack, it's a reasonably large site, isn't it? Right? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. It's a, I guess it's a two-kilometer uh, uh, track, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah. These days, that would be prime real estate. In the yeah, way. yes. Well, the government said that, uh, well, uh, cer certainly, and this was an important point, uh, there's zero chance of that piece of land being used for any gaming-related purpose. Or not gaming. Uh, not really. gaming. Uh, but uh, now, uh, certainly they'll launch probably a consultation on the use of that. It is like what they did with the, with the, with the Candy Drome, and the government announced a number of social infrastructure, sports activities for public, uh, you, know, you know, public In parks and the for leisure and all of that. In a way, this is the end of a chapter, because I remember when the horse racing came in, there were grumbling in Hong Kong. People were saying, wait a minute, the deal is we got the horses, they got the casinos. <laughs> yes. Um, they're, they're reneging on the deal. And then I remember when Donald was financial secretary, hmm. he made noises about 
introducing ga- gambling clubs. Yeah. Yeah. Was this a in, sort of a revenge? Yeah. Then? Well, I don't know. It was unspoken. It wasn't articulated. You were still in but, government but it, then. But it was yeah. there. I was still in government then. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean... It's a division of labor, right? <laughs> you have uh, uh, lotteries in the mainland, you have the jockey club here, and in Macau you have casino gambling, um, and that's basically it. And by the way, we've been seeing a robust recovery. Uh, well, we're still, with regards to gross gaming revenue, uh, 2023, uh, 62% of pre-COVID levels. However, pre-COVID was, I mean, back then was still with all the whole junket system. Now there's been a restructuring. Uh, so uh, 183 billion patakas of gross gaming revenue. And f- that was last year. And the government is uh, uh, projecting something like 212, uh, 216 billion patakas. That will be more than enough uh, to, uh, to have a surplus. Uh, because as you know, Macau uh, relies heavily on on taxes on gaming. Uh, taxes are on uh, is a special tax on gross gaming revenue, uh, and it accounts for about eighty percent of the government's total current revenue. In the closing minutes of this discussion, let's go back to actually what was our main topic. We are talking about expat livability. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you were listening one. in, weren't you, right? I mean, of yeah. course, we focused mainly on Hong Kong, but we did talk towards the end about how uh, Macau's ranking has risen substantially. Mm-hmm. I mean, still behind Hong Kong, but uh, not so far behind Hong Kong. I mean, it must have, we haven't looked at the figures in Macau in detail. It must have taken a big hit during COVID where mm-hmm. you had even more restrictions than us, right? As far as I understand, expats basically couldn't travel, right? Because they were not allowed to go into China, not allowed to go anywhere else. That's right. Uh, but no, more generally, if we put COVID aside, and I don't know how long you've probably been, you've been in Macau a long time. I've seen. 21 years. Yeah, well, there you are, right? Um, is <laughs> New, it fa- is it, New boy. <laughs> yes. Is it fair to say well, that... I arrived when I was very, very young. <laughs> has uh, Macau become much more livable for expats? Are there a lot more expats there now than before? Uh, uh, not, uh, I mean, I know Portuguese numbers may yeah. decline, but more they generally... Do, yeah. Well, compared with pre-COVID, I, th- I, think, I, I don't have the figures, but I, st- I believe there's still a long way to go before we, we go back to those. Left, yeah, a lot do. of people left. A lot of people left. The government has launched this talent attraction scheme. Actually, it's the same here, and it has <laughs> a, a competition for, for uh, foreign labor for imported talent. Uh, yeah, the thing is that, you know, the... Uh, Labor policies in Macau, uh, uh, in terms of granting residency, are way more restrictive than in in Hong Kong. What we have is the blue card system. It's officially uh, called non-resident working permit, which uh, uh, is 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 uh, it's, uh, of course is something that has been discussed. But now the government launched these uh, these scheme to attract top-notch talents uh, with a pathway to residency. Let's see how we how how how, how things unfold. There's a need. Uh, there's a shortage of talent, and now Macau that Macau is moving towards. Uh, a more diversified economic model uh, focusing on non-gaming. There's certainly a need to attract uh, more expats. In terms of livability, quality of life, I find Macau a great place, uh, a (laughs) special place. That's a great note to end on. So let's uh, uh, say thank you very much uh, to Jose Carlos uh, Matias, who's joining us uh, to discuss latest developments in Macau. Welcome back to RTHK after so many years. Um, (laughs) Thank you to my uh, co-presenter, Mike Rouse. Uh, That's it from... uh, 
<laughs> back chat today. But um, Andrew, uh, Andrew Work and Carl, Carl will be here tomorrow. So join us again tomorrow.